It is. If you, like we said earlier, it's a full circle. If, if you don't have a depth of passion, you'll tap out. You'll say, mm, this is too hard for me. Yeah. So that's why I really respect my pastry chefs because they have, like, they wake up and come into work that's not their business. So they, they have to love it, get paid and, you know, it's, it's very hard to do, let alone do it for someone else. Welcome to A Table for Two, inspiring and educational interviews and stories with the best operators, owners and entrepreneurs in business and the hospitality industry. My name is Phil Halani, and on today's episode, we chat to Roman Urasevsky, owner of Son of a Baker, one of Australia's most popular bakeries. Roman's journey in baking started from a year early age, helping his dad at his family bakery. With no real passion for baking and knowing he wasn't going to go to university, he quit school and over the next three years would work in different industries before realizing he wanted to go back to what he knew best. He approached his dad to buy the family business, but when his dad wasn't ready to sell, they had a pop-up in Miranda called Alexander's Bakery. Roman decided to make it his own and create his own brand. This was when Son of a Baker was born. He has since opened three more stores and become one of the most popular bakeries in Sydney. He has won multiple awards and gained media attention from some of the best publications around Australia. In today's episode, we talk about what it is required to be successful, opening of multiple stores, his love of combining art and food, how he learned how to bake, the highs and lows of business, how he will never open a full service cafe again that sells poached eggs, giving up the wholesale business and the positive impact COVID had on his business. I'm very grateful to Roman for taking, talking to me about his journey and also talking publicly for the first time about the breakdown of his business partnership and how it nearly ruined his brand, the mental stress it put him under and financial impact it had on him that nearly forced him to close the doors. Seeing him come out the other side is not only inspiring but also a lesson to all of us to never give up on our dream. A quick shout out to our good friends at ProCal Dairies, Sonoma Bacon Co and MD Providors who are passionate about supporting small businesses, the hospitality industry and also this podcast. Good morning, Roman. Good morning. Thanks for joining me, brother. Thank you for having me. It's um, it's a pleasure, and it's been a long time in the making. We've um, we spoke about this a long time ago, and you've obviously got um, you've been on Jay's podcast before. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for me, it's it's been a, I've been wanting to get you on the podcast for a long time, so I really appreciate it. Of course. Um, how are you feeling? Good, good. I just wanted to say congratulations for having your most successful candidate on the podcast. <laughs> Just it's um it's definitely going to be one of the most listened to. I think I think um people are very inspired by your story, and um I'm really excited to to hear more about it. Yeah, I'm excited to share. I'm looking forward to it. And and, and I'm I'm glad. Like we spoke a little bit off air, and and you did mention that you wanted to be as real as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, that's something I appreciate because sometimes people are a bit reserved. So um we're gonna get we're gonna delve in a little bit. Yeah, um, sure. Yeah, if it's something you don't want to answer, let us know. But let's let's work with it. Um, the one thing I want to ask, I came from a family background business where. Um, I always promised myself I would never get into family business. Yeah. Never do what my parents did because mm-hmm. I was just—I did it from a young age and I hated it. Yeah. Um, can you talk to me about your 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 story about how you got started into baking? Yeah. So my story is pretty simple in terms of my parents had one bakery since I was eight years old, and they never really went left or right with other things. So I was always in and out of a bakery that predominantly did breads and um, savoury pastries. So for me, like, it was never something that I was like, I'm never going to do this or I am definitely going to do this. It was just always there from when I remembered. And then uh, at about 15, I left school and I definitely knew that I didn't want to, like, 
work in the bakery full time. I wanted to try different things. So I tried carpentry, I tried tiling, I tried so many different little jobs and I always found myself coming back to the bakery. Why were you coming back to the bakery? It was flexible. Um, I have this huge adoration for my dad and what he does. So I always felt a little bit of, uh, not guilt, but I felt like I can help him. Um, even though he'll tell you I don't help out. But <laughs> <laughs> you, You're the eldest in the family as well. Yeah. You're the eldest, aren't you? Yeah. So was it something where you felt, you, like you said, there was a bit of guilt there? Um, and, I, and I can see, I met your dad at um, your, your recent opening in Bondi and mm -hmm. I can just tell how much you love and, and respect him so much. Yeah, yeah. yeah I really do uh, look up to him. Just he's so resilient and caring, never, never lost his temper at me. He's always been such a good father and I'm blessed to have that. So I just feel that I can't help but to want to give back. Um, in terms of my dad and my relationship with the bakeries, I uh, worked at my dad's bakery for a number of years, yeah, before I even thought of doing my own thing. So when you were from 15 to 18, you said mm. you're working in different industries, mm -hmm. trying different jobs, mm -hmm. and then 18 years old, was it something like a light bulb moment where you're like, I think I want to get into baking? No, nah, no. Nah. <laughs> light bulb moment was about 25. Wow, okay. Yeah, so I'm 32 now. Yep. So so from 18 25. to 25, what were you doing? Where were you at? Uh, what was I doing? <laughs> uh, I can't really tell you I had a solid career. I was always a good saver. Whatever I was doing, I was saving what I earned. Um, and if I spent, it would be on travelling or on a, apartments or whatever. It was never like something that... I made huge money, but if I did, it, my dad would always say, it's not what you make, it's what you save. So at that point, I was always saving for something bigger. Yeah. So so the, I guess the journey from 18 to 25 was more about saving money than knowing what you yeah, wanted. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yep. And then at 25, can you talk to us about the, the journey at 25 where you felt like you said there was a light bulb moment? Mm. Well, originally at the time, I remember I was earning $680 a week something like that big and bucks, big bucks. yeah huge that'll take you to about thursday <laughs> <laughs> if you're lucky yeah um but i then actually started in the markets just selling my product at the markets one day a week and i was earning like four hundred dollars so my wage bumped up wow. to like over a thousand um and i thought oh like people are really receptive to the product um, I wonder where I can go with this. So, what, what products were you making at the market? At the time, it was just actually the handmade pastries that we do, sweet and savoury, which is called budek, which is like an Eastern European cuisine. Yep. I didn't actually um, have a background in croissants or anything at that point. Mm. So let's talk about that. You, you obviously, um, your dad's bakery, Alexander's Bakery, mm -hmm. is known for um, baking breads and burek. Mm -hmm. When you go into pastries, what, what's the transition like? What are you learning? What do you have to learn? Is it a whole new skill? Yeah, definitely. Talk to us about that journey. Uh, the skill is a completely different offering in terms of ingredients, introducing new flavours, introducing... Um, butters, whereas the bread that I was doing was quite simple. Um, it was almost like a white sourdough, so it was just flour, water, salt, um, improver, and maybe just a real little bit of a starter or a yeast. Whereas with the croissants, it's a three-day um, process. Mm. So from the lamination to the rolling to the 
book folds to the freezing to the cutting um, and then proofing and then baking and then you have your ingredients mm. in terms of like your custards or your jams. So it's a whole different... Um, Is it because you had a, an idea of baking it made it a bit easier? But I mean, how do you learn how to make pastries? Um, I actually went through a different process. I, instead of learning at school and, you know, paying X amount to go to school and... Um, doing the theory and the prac. Well, I took a risk and paid uh, four pastry chefs to basically um, do the products and I would learn from them. Wow. So I hired a head pastry chef yep. and I learned under him. Okay. So yeah. you essentially did an apprenticeship under your head pastry yes, chef. But, but you, were, you were paying him. And <laughs> while I was running the business. That's very creative because mm. I think I think the, the whole idea is people are stuck. They can't do something. Yep. They don't know how to do it. They don't know yep. how to get started. You yep. found a way to, to make yeah. it work. You can always make it work if you innovate and people are willing to teach you for a price. Mm. So whether you pay a school or pay a chef or, you know, I just happened to morph it into a business. Did you find, did you find that you're, you're always worried or paranoid this pastry chef would leave? Yeah. You know, when you start a business and you haven't got a pastry in, mm. and you're like, it's essentially I'm in the same position where our chefs and, and baristas and that, yeah. I, don't, I, I don't know how to do either, so, yeah. but I'm very lucky we've got a great culture and whatnot. Yeah. But was that a fee growing up? Yeah, it was. When you start a business, I think you're only as good as your team and you can only get so far. And the biggest limiter to scalability is your staff. Okay. So for sure, that's why I had one shop and, you know, I was actually doing all day breakfast, all day lunch, mm. and I didn't even know how to poach an egg. So We're going to talk about <laughs> We're going to talk about eggs very soon. Um, <laughs> I'd love to know, before we know about yeah. the idea of Son of a Baker, mm -hmm. what's your view on, um, obviously you took a different route when you came to learning how to do pastries. Mm. What's your view on traditional education for what you were trying to do? Um, it depends which direction you want to head in. If you, some people, like I know personally, um, the head pastry chef that um, I hired, his name was Brett and he's phenomenal at his job and um, executing pastries. But... He's someone that um, I highly respect but doesn't want to be an operator okay. and an owner. Yeah. So um, he'll continue to grow his knowledge in education, trying new um, things, but whereas myself, I want to be an operator and an owner um, and scale the business, learn about systems. Uh, branding is super important to me, mm. so work with branding um, people and... Yeah, so it depends how you want to kind of see where it want, where you want it to take you. But originally, for sure, you need a bit of education, whether it's from school or someone. Yeah. You can't just wing it with no knowledge. Yeah. And you obviously finished school after year 10. Yep. What, what was the one thing that you gained from school? Um, I finished – the day I could sign out was the day I left. Okay. Like I was – not that school wasn't um, for – you know, you can't blanket school and say it's, like, not useful for anything or not, you know. Like, so I think it's got many benefits. But for me, I wasn't engaged in what I was learning. It wasn't practical to take me further than, um, you know, your simple English and maths and then, then what? For me, it's like I'm not going to go to uni. What's next? What's next? It's going to be I'm going to work and I'm going to, like, figure out how I'm going to open my own business. Okay. Yeah. 
So let's talk about the son of a baker journey. Mm-hmm. You obviously said you went to the markets, you were selling pastries, yep. making $400 a day. Yep. Um, and then talk to us about when did the journey for son of a baker start? Uh, well, just on that, so I ended up like opening about five markets. Okay. So I, I went from one market to five markets. And what was the reason for that? Just, again, income. Okay. And I enjoyed what I did. And if I could make two, three, five, four hundred dollars a market and I had four or five of them, um, like we're talking like maybe oh, seven years ago now. Wow. So it was all cash. Good, <laughs> um, <the> good day. <laughs> so it was, it was a different kind of um, income in terms of like what you made is what you saved kind of thing. And, um, and yeah, I just, I, I just put what I could aside and I thought I got to a point where I'm like I love the markets in terms of what it's done for me but it was time to move into something more stable and consistent. I found with the markets very weather dependent, yeah. uh, wind dependent, it's too hot, people don't come, it's mm. rains, people don't come. So I moved more into okay let's actually look at getting a physical shop. So that's where I hit a fork in the road where I was like to my dad I said okay I'm ready to take over the business. Um, and he kind of like it backed him into a corner to make him realise he wasn't ready to let go of the reins. So I kind of said, all right, well, I'm going to start my own journey. That, that's that's pretty special from your dad. I mean, he's been doing this for 20, 30 years. Yeah, right? yeah. And I think mm. to see that, you know, when you said he wasn't sure what he wanted to do at that point, yeah. like, it showed yeah. you that he loves it. Yeah, he does love it. And it is an addiction because we've done something for so long every day day after day and then for someone to come to you and say i'll 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 put a stop to it um you do your thing and they don't know what to do that's very hard for them to unlearn how you know to do something different or and your parents will always say this is yours whenever you want it this is yours but if you actually challenge them and say it um prematurely you'll see the resistance that they don't want to let go of the rain so I didn't want to push it at least I had really explored that route with my parents to say you know I'm ready to take over the bakery and then I could scale and expand from my parents bakery because it's a very good base it's like 200 square meters all the machineries there big ovens so it would actually be the easier route for me than starting from scratch altogether New, new new brand new facility the whole thing is you know from scratch yeah all right, so once your dad says to you, I'm not ready to give it up, mm. piss off, <laughs> what, was the, what was your next step? Uh, I was currently operating in Miranda Westfields as a pop-up. So okay. under, I, under your dad's name? Yes, okay. under Alexander's Bakery. Yeah. So at this point I had a, my own pop-up store in the Westfields, which was doing really well and I wanted it to make it more permanent. So... Uh, my idea was to create a brand and from that brand pitch it to Westfields to say, I love what I'm doing. I love the business that I have with you guys. I want to demolish where I'm currently operating and build a kiosk. Permanent kiosk. Permanent kiosk, permanent seating, permanent, um, you know, tops and... uh, Ovens and, and things like that. Yeah. It was about 30 square metres, so it was quite small. And the goal was to change the name, create your own concept. Yeah, yeah. So by the time I got to 
pitching to them, I had created um, the name with... I had a business partner at the time and we employed a creative designer so who would essentially translate all our thoughts and our visions into a creative brand. Okay. So talk to us about the process of... I mean, the leasing essentially was already... you were, It was already in place with Alexander's Bakery. So mm. what was it like dealing with... Um, essentially Westfields when you were doing a yeah. permanent kiosk? Actually, it was a lot harder of a transition because I was paying minimal rent and it was actually a good system that we had. And at the time, markets were huge, so they tried to create this precinct with the feel of the markets within the Westfields. Okay. So there was about 20 people on the board. 19 of them said yes, like we, we like your idea make sense financially and there was one that I'd never met this person but they were obviously quite uh, influential and there was a lot of resistance this person was emotionally attached to the market concept within the Westfields okay, yeah. and didn't want me to take that away and demolish this market feel of like the fresh you know yeah, food yeah, yeah. because the idea of the pop-up was I was trading there so permanently that it actually was designed for people to come in and bump out, come in okay. and bump out. But yeah. I, I wanted that space, so I was always booking it. And, yeah, okay. You know. So you had booked it in advance, like yeah. time, weeks yeah. in advance. And people would even trade there and I would go there and tell them, I'll pay your rent. Like I'll pay, just don't turn up, you know. Wow. Yeah, so I ended up like muscling my way into trade there. Wow. Yeah. And some of them might not have been performing as well, so they were happy for you yeah, to take that. I would, yeah, pay them their That's day's excellent. wage. Yeah, just cool. to leave. So you obviously got it across the line. Yeah. Um, you got the deal done. Yeah. Talk to us about, because that was your first, essentially first store yep. before San Susie. Yeah. What was that like? Uh, it was actually a really smooth process. Yeah. Um, of course, there's always hurdles and... Um, hiccups along the way but I had a great builder uh, and they took care of the CDC, the OC and looked after it and it was built within four weeks. Wow. What was, was the, were you baking from your dad's bakery and then? At the time I was, yeah. So I was transitioning okay. and I was still using my dad's facility because I didn't have a bakehouse. Mm. But in the process there was um, a... Three week layover, and I opened another shop. Is that San Susie? Yeah, San awesome. Susie. But so, so you can imagine there was so much happening yeah. prior to that. It didn't just pop up three weeks later. So I had two in the making. So we want to talk more about branding and things like that yep. as we go on. Mm -hmm. You're in, you're in um, Miranda, you've got your son of a baker name mm -hmm. set up, everything's mm -hmm. ready to go. And then you said you opened San Susie. Mm -hmm. what, you said it, obviously it would have been very hard. Yeah. What was that transition like? Yeah, San Susie was a really tough shop for me. I had uh, a very difficult landlord. So I had spent a lot of money on his building and I don't think he saw the fact how much, you know, as a lessee and a lot of your listeners will know because we're most of us are lessees, yeah. your landlord either appreciates what you're doing for the building, for the goodwill of the place, you know, you're potentially making it a destinational thing or they're like, skin you for every cent it's yeah. almost like there's no in between so true yeah so i personally found a lot of resistance from the landlord that i had but i was already too far invested mm. into this because i was just like go 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 so um that was actually 
the idea of that shop was a sh- short-term dining but a bakehouse. So it was like a multifunctional, okay. you know, I would supply a Miranda but I would also have a, a short-term dining there. Yeah. Yeah. And you obviously open San Susie. Yep. You kind of go even further out, you start doing a menu like you said. Yeah, we did all day breakfast, all day lunch. Big menu, I mean, it was like 22 items. Wow. For a sh- it's a very small space. Yeah, very small. It was like a 40-seater, but like tight, tight 40, not open. Yeah. yeah. And what was it like? Obviously, you're a baker, this is what you do, and then you got a cafe running, yeah. running venue with... <laughs> My heart's pounding at the thought of thinking <laughs> back to it because at the time, you're like, you've got no choice. You've thrown yourself in the deep end. You've got to make it work um, and look after everyone that comes through the doors. But you know yourself, putting a breakfast menu on with seating and and uh, wait staff and everything, service, yeah. yeah, is a very demanding job. Mm. It's high, high attention. It requires you to always be on point with um, the food you serve because that's just the industry it is it's yeah. very easy to go and get breakfast somewhere else so if you want to retain a you know a regular f- uh, where people come back yeah you really need to be on top of it but in 2018 we got voted by good food au as top 20 cafes in sydney i remember seeing that yeah, yeah. so that was a big achievement because you know i was never in any sort of I didn't even, like I said, I didn't even know how to poach an egg. Mm. So for me to like work that into an operational side of things, I knew what I did right and I knew what my weaknesses wasn't. Let me ask you though, I think, you know, you did say when it came to baking, Mm. you you kind of got someone to teach you how to do Mm. things. Mm. What was, why wouldn't you have done the same kind of thing with with the cafe side of things? Because I didn't have a, a deep passion for it. And that's the difference. If you have a passion for something, you'll learn and take, you know, do whatever it takes to learn from that. But as far as, you know, an actual passion for all day breakfast, all day lunch, truthfully speaking, I don't know how people do it. I did it for, what was it, two or three years and I was like, by the end of it, I'll have no hair left, I'll be so stressed. Yeah. Uh, just it's just not for me. I, I, lo- I love the fact that you said that it didn't work because you weren't passionate about yep. it. Because it's you, you've made baking your son of a baker work because that's what you're passionate about, mm. and it, and you want you'll make it work no matter what. Mm-hmm. So I think the fact that you've said that it's it's so true. If you're not passionate and obsessed, and I probably mention this every podcast, then you shouldn't be doing what you're doing. So yeah. So when was the the moment where you said, "All right, I'm not gonna do breakfast anymore in this venue"? Well, that moment came. Very early on in my mind. <laughs> in my mind. You were ready. You were I done. was ready to like yeah. light it up. Yeah. But um, mentally I had to keep going. Mm. You can't just open an all-day yeah. breakfast. And we are busy. We were doing like 220 to 300 covers a day. That's a lot for that space. Yeah, massive. We, and so the pressure to turn over tables mm. and help clear the table, get the people who are waiting in mm. and – you know, have not, a not good making experience. people feel rushed. Yeah, like, yeah, that's right. How do you make someone not feel rushed when you need the table? Yeah. 
So I learned a few tricks what to do. <laughs> any, any that you can teach us? Yeah, I had one where I would say, would you guys like anything else? And they would say, nah, we're fine. And then so I would get another staff to go and ask them two minutes later. <laughs> and then I would get another staff to ask them. So it was a different person every time. Yeah, yeah. And then if they still sat there, the next person would drop the bill. Okay, cool. Yeah. So it was, it was harsh because... I, I didn't want to rush anyone, but you've got people breathing down your neck. How long for a table? Yeah, how long for a table? And it's like, how do you even answer that? Mm. Because we didn't do bookings, it was walking only, so we didn't have an end time for your table. So it's like there's pros and cons to yeah, it. Of course. So we're going to fast track a little bit, but then mm-hmm. go back to the story. Mm-hmm. You you finally get rid of breakfast. Yeah. Lunch, so to it? answer your question quickly, I. I actually wanted to sell for quite a long time. So a San Susie store? Yeah, yeah. just a San Susie. Because at this time I had three stores. Okay. Yeah, I had open botany. Mm. So I had three stores. Two were like a A to B kind of service, grab and go, baking. And one was all day breakfast, all yeah. day lunch. So I knew the scalability for the future was the concepts that I had within the Westfield yeah. and the Botany location. Okay. But with San Susie, it took me about 18 months to sell. Yeah. Is this, you couldn't find buyers? Yeah, yeah. It was, um, it was buyers. It was uh, the location. I made it work, but not everyone could make it work. Yeah. It was on a busy street yeah. and people were a bit turned off by that. It, it, busy in terms of cars, trucks. Yeah. Very loud. Very loud, yeah. loud. And... Yeah, I, uh, I, then COVID happened and that was the biggest blessing because then I could actually put my hand up and say, I'm shutting this kitchen wow. and just divert it to that. Mm. So still to this day, I don't think people really understand when I did that post to say I'm not serving breakfast anymore, you'll be fine, go and get breakfast somewhere else. I genuinely didn't want people coming for breakfast anymore because wow. I was like, I've had it, like... Mm. Genuinely, I would like not to diss any customers or the support that I got, but f- emotionally, physically, mentally, I was like, done. It, it's, <laughs> I, I could remember, and you had some really cool, funny posts during yeah. that period of COVID. <laughs> yeah. And we want to talk about COVID as well. Sure. But I think, I think the, the relief, I and mean, obviously we're talking a lot during COVID, but that mm. relief you had once you stopped serving breakfast was probably, yeah. what do you reckon, one of the biggest decisions you made? Yeah, it was one of the best decisions too. And I think a lot of operators will vouch for this. What it did, lockdowns and shutdowns and closing and no tables and spacing, it really gave everyone a chance to strip back and gave everyone a chance to strip back and see where their bottom dollar was. What were they doing right? What were they doing wrong? Um, And yeah that's what it did for me yeah so while you had the San Susie store that's where you were doing most of your baking right in the yes. San Susie store yeah. so you're doing breakfast you're cooking yep. and also baking yeah the reason you opened botany was that purely for a, a space. space we outgrew yeah. it very quick okay like within eight weeks or 12 weeks we outgrew that space super wow. quick did you think you were going to outgrow it that quick like did you think you were going to outgrow it at all no it all happened so fast mm. i didn't even know what to think it was like i had three stores in eight months what what was so you you take the lease at botany mm-hmm. um that's going to be your hq yep. um talk to us about that that journey well that actually was very opposite to san susie have a great landlord there have a great relationship with him 
and it motivates me to want to put work into his building and know that it's a long-term yeah. thing. So I have a great relationship there with him and uh, that has been a blessing. The community just jumped on us like we were always there. They loved us from day one. I'm sure by the few exceptions, um, but we uh, opened there in December 2018 and, yeah, just ever since then been trading seven days from there. Is is Botany keeping up with demand now or do you need a bigger space? I need a bigger space. Yeah? Yep. But Botany as well, you sort of take away. Yep. And coffee. And, and takeaway does well through that? Yeah, coffee. Uh, we do about... 66 kilos a week out of there. Wow. Yeah, and then pastries do really well. That's awesome. So it's a great location. Um, but in terms of growth, I, I, I often listen to this podcast called um, How How I Built This. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah awesome. and it just talk, talks about scalability and yeah. things like that. So, yeah, you, need, you will grow into any space that you take, mm. I believe. Rome's when you... When you're opening businesses, obviously you worked for your dad, so mm-hmm. he was running the business kind of yep. thing. What was it like understanding the, the number side of mm. things, you know, the financials? Yeah. Transitionally, my parents did everything super old school. Mm. So even down to like no FPOS, the books, like it was just so hard for them to unlearn to do it differently because totally. that's how they were running a business from the 80s. Yep. So I actually was motivated to do the opposite. I wanted systems and numbers and I wanted to understand – uh, the entire s- how to run a business properly. Um, so I have a great accountant and, yeah, I understand a lot more as as I grow and but I'm still learning, but, yeah. yeah. Was it hard for yourself when you're opening these businesses and they're busy and mm-hmm. it's a whole it's a whole other world really yeah. learning? Was it hard for you? Yeah, it was. Yeah. There was a stage where I didn't understand GST. I, I really didn't. I thought that GST was part of the income outcome. So what you make and what you spend, there's a difference and that GST is included. But I didn't realise that, no, on every sale you put 10% aside for the mafia and then, (laughs) uh, you know, you have to then work out the Mm. income outcome. So there was a stage where the business was in like half a million dollars debt. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Because I had no idea that like... I was just behind the eight ball from the start, making a lot of turnover. Mm. Turnover was huge and then, you know, but the outgoings just as much. So, sure, I'm, you know, running a successful business, but there was so much that you don't account for if you don't have, if you're not in front of the eight ball from the day you open. The the fact that you said about the GC, I think a lot of people like a lot of the numbers side. I think a lot of people don't understand yeah, the business. Yeah. I don't think you're alone there. Mm. What? How did you get yourself out of that that rut, the debt that you're in? I just slummed it. I remember for like five months, I just did not spend anything from the business. Didn't buy anything. Didn't you know? I just literally anything that came out, I went on a a plan with the accountant and the and the taxation office and just chipped away at the debt. Wow. One thing with the tax, if you attempt to pay your bills, they will go easier on you in terms of they'll work with you. Mm. So there's huge interest, but if you pay it back, then the interest gets wiped. So they essentially pay it back, the interest back, right? Or they, they take get rid of the interest. It'll be on your bill, but if you pay your bill, the interest will be wiped. So okay. I think my interest was like 40 grand at the time or wow. something. I don't know what it was, but... 
Yeah. So, I mean, I just wanted the business to stay afloat. Yeah. And that was my goal. So wages, rent and the business yeah. to stay afloat. And then I came out of it. What, what, were your, what was your thought process going through that period where you're in so much debt? It's stressful. It really is. It's like, you know, when, when you see staff on their phone or when you see people um, not really, like just doing the bare minimum and you are got this weight on your shoulders, you almost just feel like no one cares and you take it a bit personally. Yeah. You get emotionally invested in the business. So you can talk to your staff in an aggressive way or a nice way but at the end of the day like for me I'll do whatever it takes to protect the business mm. just because that is like I've fought so hard to get to where I am yeah. and I have this like mentality that I'll do whatever it takes for people not to get in my way it's because you know there's this thing we say at Percy's is no one's bigger than the business yeah it's it's you know this business is it does so much for so many people that we got to make sure this business That's is always right. successful yeah so, um how did you deal with the stress and the mental pressure of 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 that instance and also business in general uh i think it's important to have outlets oh for me the water is good i would yeah. go for cold showers cold swims anything to do with like shocking my body physically um a <clears throat> bit of training but yeah sports like even going go-karting or anything that takes your mind off things that you enjoy just try to make time for it mm. you went on a, a cold retreat oh yeah i did yeah what was that like yeah, it was good it was really good it like i didn't what, take what was, my phone so what was the experience like what is it what's what's the essentially it was just cold plunging ice baths uh anything to do with like your central nervous system firing all of its endorphins mm. so you are so alert it's and almost like having a triple shot of coffee and you're just so focused wow and no phones nothing no, else. no phones yeah. what's it like coming back where you've had this focus for however long you're there mm. and then you come back and you're i think it's like any holiday that we go out it's like a false sense of reality that mm. you always want it to be like this so there's a dip when you come back mm. like this is you know there's a bit of a dip but i'm at the point of the business now i'm enjoying what i do that's awesome yeah well you put things in place obviously you know we're in your apartment and you have no tv and and what's the reason behind that just to essentially slow down time i feel like time doesn't wait for anyone but if we can create our lifestyles to be fitting that we're not constantly occupied by something yeah like a tv like instagram or our phones yeah at least the minute you feel like it's a minute not yeah. you know 10 minutes goes by and it's it feels like a minute it's very easy to get distracted as well when you just sit down after a long day yeah. a hard day at work and yeah. just two hours Switch like you off. said two hours later i'd love to ask from an outsider looking in, baking, it looks very romantic and cool and, you know, you, you're baking at 2 a.m. and you're yeah. kind of, you know, the, the, the pastries. What's it like when you're there on your own mm. or you've got a couple of staff with you at 2 a.m., yeah. the rest of the world's asleep? Yeah. What's that feeling like? There are bliss moments in terms of you feel that everyone's asleep and you're getting ahead and there's no one to bother your phone to, you know. There's no one to essentially – there's no traffic, there's no – pressure except yeah. to wake up once you've woken up that's the hardest part yeah. uh, but majority of the time 
it's hard. It's not easy. Yeah. 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 It's because you know the last we our last podcast we interviewed Alex from Black Cocker too, and he's like. You're baking at midnight, one mm. o'clock, two o'clock, mm. and it's 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 a harder. He was a chef, and he went from chefing to bakery, mm-hmm. and he said baking's actually harder, but he loves it more. Yeah, it's it's a hard job to do. Mm. It is if you, like we said earlier, it's a full circle. If if you don't have a depth of passion, you'll tap out. You'll say mm, this is too hard for me. Yeah. So that's why I really respect my pastry chefs because they have like they wake up. And come into work that's not their business. So they they have to love it, get paid, and you know it's it's very hard to do, let alone do it for someone else too. Yeah, so true. And, and how do you motivate your that respect? They must appreciate that a lot. And you do have a great culture. When I go pick up the mm-hmm. pastries and things, yeah. how do you motivate your staff? How do you keep them focused? One thing that is maybe underrated is your innovation to create. You have to constantly be creating so they are learning, not getting bored. Um, Systemise things so their job is easier because if they can follow what you are, um, you know, mapping out for them and it makes their life easier, makes my life easier, that's, that's a great way to keep the staff retention. But if they're constantly under pressure, no one knows what's going on, there's no leader, people will turn over. So that and also... Um, just respecting them just to make sure that they're looked after i really do try to look after all my staff yeah you, well you can tell they're happy when mm. you're there you know yeah. so um has it been hard finding bakers and things like that uh pre-covid yes post-covid no oh, wow yeah because the minority that were great operators survived and thrived and they probably actually grew and needed more staff and there was ones that, again, didn't make the cut. Wow. So all the ones that didn't make the cut, There's bakers were going. There's people needing to yeah. work. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very, it was, that's very uncommon because in the more the restaurant cafe mm-hmm. game, there's a massive shortage right now. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a blessing to be in that position. Yeah. Um, you obviously – so you, you have your Miranda store, you have your Botany store and you recently opened um, Bondi. Mm-hmm. How the, how's that been, opening Bondi? And how, how are you juggling – three stores now Mm -hmm. and maintaining that standard and quality that I know you have that high standard. Yeah. Well, Bondi, I actually thought was going to be a smooth build and run because of my first experience. But that was one of the most unforeseeable, stressful builds. Um, So building it, I decided to try to do a 2.0 version of Miranda and really go high end. I employed or I did a deal with a, a carpenter, a joiner, because 80% of it's joinery. So I actually thought, why employ a builder when it's 80% joinery? He'll know more, uh, you know. Okay. Um, but it was – and I heard good things about him. You know, he worked for high-end architects. He did this, he did that. So I went with this guy against my gut. May I say? <laughs> so that's a big lesson right there, isn't <laughs> it? It's already the first red flag. But I did. I pushed through because I wanted this to be mint. I just – I didn't mind paying a bit extra, but I wanted those special finishes, those clean, chic lines. So it was a disaster. I employed – I don't know if you can call employed this guy. Well, I got him to build my um, kiosk and he just had no, no clue of – 
an operational point of view. You can get a joiner, but does he know how to put a carpenter, an electrician, mm. a vinyl guy all in, the, all in place? Does he understand what it takes from A to Z to build? Or are you just a good, a good joiner? So that um, was a hard experience, a big experience, and I'm sh- like a costly one as well. Yeah, probably put me out of pocket about eighty thousand dollars. Wow. Yeah, when the contract value was one hundred and fifteen thousand, and I had a guy that who had built my dad's renovation that I should have gone with, who was five thousand dollars cheaper, but I went and paid a bit more, and then I had to go back to the guy and say, wow. "Hey, listen." I effed up. I need you to help me take over this job. And so, but to get someone to take over someone's defective work and uh, you know finish someone else's work, it's it costs you more. It's more than from scratch. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. But we got there, mm. and yeah, it was a lesson. So, so, what's that lesson that you learned through that build? What's the what's the one lesson you give advice you give to someone that's about to start their own shop? If you're an operator, the biggest advice I would give you is, when you're handed a contract by the builder, they have their terms and conditions. I would strongly suggest if they tell you it's going to be built December 10, then have your own contract to say. This needs to be built by December 10 yeah. or I want $500 a day or $1,000 a day. Every day it goes over for loss of trade, loss of opportunity. Yeah. So they feel there's consequences to not making the timeline. Okay. So first thing, just to recap it, actually get your solicitor, spend a little bit of money and get your builder to sign a contract to say, it needs to be done on the timeline you're giving me yeah. because otherwise they come back to you with excuses, they'll win other jobs, they'll go there and you're just left like, what am I supposed to do? Yeah. At least if there's something on paper, legalities, to say you actually will have to pay me damages of loss of trade. They're willing, they're going to show up, they're going to make sure they're they'll on time. They'll make sure they'll yeah. finish it yeah, it's, and it's, move it's, on. It's a very expensive lesson, but at the same yeah. time, it's this is what this is how we learn and grow, yeah. right? Like it's experiences, That's right. yeah. And word of mouth is usually good if somebody's actually done a job with this guy. Um, but you need to go further. Check their Google reviews. Yeah. Check, do background checks on them properly. And who's the builder that you ended up going with? Uh, his name is Faisal and he runs Trade Industries Group. Cool. And yeah. Yeah, you, you obviously you've spoken a few times about it, very yeah. highly recommended. Yep. Yeah. Things like that. And I'm going to say it, ITF who I used in Kirui, I would not recommend. Okay. Yeah. I mean, obviously they've, they've burnt you, so. Yeah, ITF cabinetry making. I would not use them again. Okay. Um, and thank you for sharing that because sometimes people are yeah. worried, but at the end no, of the day. No, don't like... use them. Black and white, <laughs> honestly. That's no. my experience. And that's what I think. Mm. And so, like, now you've got the three stores. How are you maintaining and managing the quality? Quality. Um, I find it's almost like what you water grows. So if you focus on one shop, a lot and you're there every day and you look at that shop and you look at all the ins and outs it will grow and then the other two might need more like they they don't get any loving or attention and then they drop so you have to almost distribute your time evenly throughout the three stores how are you doing that and no favoritism uh right now how am i doing it i'm nailing two out of three it's almost like two stores is easy and then the third is Hard plate to spin. So what do you think you need to do to make that, make it more consistent over the three? 
Well, I need someone to take the pressure off me and so that's why I've put an ad for a PA, just someone who I can delegate like a lot of my paperwork stuff to yeah. and then that way I can be on the shops a lot more mm. because if you send someone to the three stores daily, it's still not the same yeah. unless they have an invested interest in the business because yeah. they're going to say hi to the staff, do you want a coffee, yeah, everything's good and but if I go there, their back's stand up posture and is. posture up and there's there's a difference um and and so i actually my one of my accountants my accountant told me recently he's like hiring a pa will change your life like yeah. the amount of time it frees up so i'm looking forward to it actually i haven't never had one yeah but i i can just imagine yeah That's it'll awesome. be good yeah, it'll give you a lot a lot more time hopefully so we want to we want to talk about business partnerships mm-hmm. um you've obviously you had a business partner with yep a son of a baker, mm. um, that's no longer mm-hmm. the case. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? We'd love to know as much detail as possible, but at yep. the same time we understand certain reasons yep. you can't. Yeah. Well, there's so much to share and there's so much, you know, you you want to reserve because, not because of, you know, I don't want to expose anything, but it's more so I never like to talk bad about someone because it you know, those people that have their side and, you know, they... But I'll say it, you know, I got into business in 2017, then we opened in 2018 with a business partner and four months into the business, there was a sexual assault charge against him on one of our employees who was underage. Wow. Yeah. So it was super fresh in the business but nobody knew because it was like a, a matter for the police and it went before a jury. So it was a whole thing and it was in the papers and there was things that came out and uh, throughout the whole time it's hard to almost scale the business because what what does the future look like? Do I want to be in business with this person? But then again, like I can't you know, I can't shoot him, so to speak, because I'll shoot myself. We're in business together. So you have to try to find a balance. So I just decided that I'll continue operating the business and not get involved in that side of things. Was he still involved with the business at this point? Yeah, at that point he was, yep. Uh, And then fast forward, you know, it was a bad part. It was a – I'll start with it was a good partnership. We never fought. It was a great – invested interest uh you know he brought things to the table i can't say i didn't learn anything from him um it upped my attention to detail there was things that you know i learned as you would with anyone whether they're good or bad and as time went on uh he did spiral mentally because of the case ahead so you know imagine paying 20 30 grand lawyer bills at a time yeah and you're selling coffee and pastry. It's very hard to... So there was gambling involved, you know, with the business's money wow. to try to pay easy way and obviously that never works. So I found myself really in quicksand and if, like, it was almost like my head was underwater and I'm trying to breathe and help but I'm going to sink if I don't get out of this. Mm-hmm. So it was either to try to make something of it and buy him out or we were trying to figure it out and I think 
you know, as time went on, he was really confident that nothing was going to happen in terms of the jury and and things like that. So, uh, you know, he said, I'll be fine, don't worry. And I said to him, I remember, I said, Dude, for your own sake, sort out your affairs because if the judge says something that you don't want to hear, there's no, oh, let me go talk to my family, let me go yeah. speak to my business partner. That's it. If that hammer gets slammed and you need to go to jail, you're gone. And so... You know, I said sort everything you need to out and, um, yeah, eventually the case came and in August 2019, so like two years ago, mm. he went to jail for a minimum of three years. Wow. Yeah. So I had to essentially damage control somebody else's actions and pay the consequences for it. So I had two... Options, I can be like, man, like, I can fold and be like, somehow go bankrupt, go just hand it in somewhere, or pay whatever, lose whatever, and take, and I'll start again, you know? But I was like, no, I want to damage control these articles. Because people would actually message the page rapist or this, wow. or my experience with him is that. So imagine building a brand that was almost flawless you know we got great reviews people loved us um there was so much to you know we were always son of a baker was always this you know amazing bakery but it was tinted by somebody else's actions and i had to essentially damage control show more face under like help people understand that that's not me. And I didn't want to do a public statement because at the time we had like 22,000 followers. And I remember thinking, do I address this? Do I not? Because it was in the Daily Telegraph quite a f few times. It went on viral on Facebook and I thought, oh, man, what do I do with this? People wanted to ask me what's happened. Um, and so I decided not to do a statement and just keep pushing forward because I thought if I have 22,000 followers and 2,000 people know about it, I'm exposing it to 20,000 people mm. that didn't know. That wasn't your fault. That wasn't your... Yeah, that didn't know. And, yeah, I just continued on. And then it's funny because every achievement after 2019 in August, I made the front cover of Business Baking Mag, um... But, you know, I'd won a lot of awards in terms of the bakery and they just felt so much sweeter because I had almost folded the business and I had to dig out of the trenches to basically still become more successful than ever. Man, there's, there's so many questions I want to ask you about this. I think the first thing... The most important thing was how did you, how did you cope mentally? Like you said, you were, you know those times we were thinking about closing the business, mm. folding. Like how are you feeling? Like yeah, well, I don't think I could have felt more pressure than that. You know, there was a lot of money owed to me to rescue the business, the tax debts, the you know the future of the business. Do people want to come and support that? Um, but mentally, you go into a place where. Our bodies naturally have that survivor instinct. It's very hard for us to commit any sort of final ending, whether it's business or we want to fight for it. So thankfully I have, a, I think, a good resilience 
and a good a belief in myself, which is important to speak nicely to yourself, to understand that it's not permanent. And I just kept going every day. I have um, a really good right-hand man. Uh, man, You know Adam? Adam, legend. Yeah, he's yeah. been really good from the day it happened till two years later. It just has not left my side. So he's been phenomenal for me. Um, and, yeah, I just honestly just kept going. And I still opened another store. Yeah, so... Mate, that's, that's credit to you, right? On own. top of all the legalities, yeah. you know, there's so much legal stuff that you have to deal with mm. in that instance. And how do you deal with it? How do you even plan for that? How do you go to someone and ask what was their experience with it when no one's experienced yeah. that I know? So so you, you, you've bought out your ex-business partner. Mm-hmm. You know, you've, you get through this, the hardest period of your life. Yep. Open another store. Like, mm. how do you feel now? Like, what's that feeling like now? Feeling is really phenomenal because it's like I still did my co-workers proud, the brand proud, the people who follow the page. We have, you know, almost over 27,000 followers and my parents and just myself. Like I just feel that I've achieved a lot in three years. The business is three or four years old. It's nothing. How do you? It feels like sometimes feels like more, you know. <laughs> so what? Yeah, I mean, this is a very rare instance that happens mm. with business partnerships. Mm. But now that you're on your own, mm. it's your business, your baby, hundred yep. percent. Yeah. What advice would you give to people that are that are looking at getting a partnership with people? Yeah. There's. I don't think all partnerships are doomed for des- like that's their destiny. But I think it's realistic to say the minority are successful. Yeah. Long term. Anyone can be successful for a year or two, but I'm talking a partnership that is successful long-term. There's a lot of things that you have to look at outside of, okay, his strengths are my weaknesses, we should partner up. Mm. Or he's got money, I don't, let's partner up. Or trade-offs like that. I think what people really should look for in a business partnership is are your morals and your characteristics aligned? Because if my morals outside of work are different to yours, eventually they will creep in when the hard decisions need to be made. So you really need to make sure that you guys are aligned in a characteristic moral sense. So do you, do you find that it'd be hard for you to go in partnership with someone again? I definitely do things differently. And one thing I will say as well, it's very easy to get into partnership but it's extremely hard to get out of it. Mm. So if you don't have the right things in place, like even on a good day you should be talking about an exit strategy just in case because I didn't have an exit strategy. You, you know, half of us listening probably don't. Yeah. Who has a good exit strategy that if X, Y, Z happens, X, Y, Z is going to be the result? Yeah. It's always going to be messy. You always think only of the good when you're getting in partnership, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And you always think, oh, not me. Not us. Mm. That won't happen to us. Yeah. You know. And, and do you think that period you went with your ex-business partner was the hardest period of your life? Yeah, I do. I yeah. do. I don't remember recalling anything harder because it's your whole livelihood. It's your reputation. It's your financials. It's everything. And as an operator, and everyone will know this listening, it's burdening as it is mm. to f- provide, to maintain, to keep up 
and you can't help take it home with you. Yeah, so true. Um, we want to move on from the partnership, but sure. I really appreciate your, mm. your honesty with that. That's it's, probably the most I've ever shared because yeah. I trust you and it's, you know, it's two years on. I think if you hide your experiences, no one's going to learn from what you've been through. So what yeah. benefit is it? No, and this is the reason for the podcast. People want to know yeah. the truth and yeah. understand to learn and grow. Yeah. So there's a lot of value in that. Let's talk about COVID mm -hmm. and, and you, you did mention it was from a business point of view, it's probably the best thing that ever happened to you. Yeah. Um, can you talk to us about that experience of COVID and, and, and what you felt when, during that time? Do you want to know personally, I when it first happened, I never believed in it. I didn't believe in it at all. I didn't what? think that it was real. I didn't think that it was as life-threatening as they said, okay. all of these things. So I pushed on from an operational point of view like nothing had changed. There was nothing. Oh, why do I need hand sanitizer? Was I not clean before? That was like my, that was my thought process. That's a great point, yeah. Like now I've got to clean my kitchen. What was I doing before? Was it not clean? <laughs> so like I didn't change for anyone, mm. not for the customers, not for the staff, no one. It's going to stay the same. So I kept that mentality. That's not – people might not agree with it or people not might not have done the same, but fear is like a currency of control. If I'm going to be fear um, – if I'm going to be controlled by fear, then everything on the news is going to freak me out. That's, that's so, such, a, it's such a great way to look at it. And I think, like you said, you were doing all the right things beforehand. Yeah, and that's why I was doing well. So why am I going to change it if – Channel 7 or Channel Anyone tells me like... Yeah. And COVID um, made you shift your business a little bit, your business model. Yeah. You stopped wholesaling completely. Yeah. Oh, except for... Except for you. Except for me. Except to you. <laughs> and you, you know, obviously I'm, I'm super grateful for that because obviously, you yeah. know, I'm posting on my page, people are yeah. asking, well, can you wholesale? You're yeah. saying no. Thank you again. I, it's, it <laughs> means okay. a lot. What was the reason behind you stopping wholesale completely? Because that's there was a, you had a lot of customers. Yeah, I had maybe thirty to fifty accounts in wholesale, and we wow. had um, you know drivers on the road. We had a lot of income with it, but I realized it's not the direction that I want to go in. I didn't want to grow my wholesale account to 100, 200 cafes or less more. It wasn't the direction that I wanted to go in. Quality control was a lot harder. Uh, and I just had this moment where I remember, I think I told you, I sold three cronuts to a customer. I said, that's $18. They said, no worries. And then I'm out here chasing six, $7 for three cronuts in a wholesale account. And I'm driving it to you. I'm, you know, delivering, picking up crates, whatever it is. So I just had this moment where I'm like, Now's the time to make drastic changes. Everyone's making drastic changes. So I notified all my customers, you know, two weeks from now I won't be wholesaling and my phone blew up. Like, what do you mean no more wholesale? I said, I'm just going to focus on scaling what I currently have in the models in Westfields. And, yeah, I just wanted to cut away things that were too time-consuming for me. Mm. And I found wholesale was that. Some businesses are scaled and suited to wholesale and they can do both. I didn't want to do it. And I think I'm open to say if I'm an operator and I take on all the stress and I take on all the rent, wages, taxes, if I take on all that, then I can make the decisions that I want. Yeah. And I'm not sorry for that. If, yeah. I, if I don't want to do it, I'm not doing it. Mm. Rome's. I think one of the, the most amazing things about your journey is 
you know, I've, obviously I've known you for about three years now, mm-hmm. but just it just no, you know you're certain of what you want now. Yeah, that's a and that's that only comes with the experience, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It's something that is very hard to follow a direction or a goal if you don't know what it is. So you'll just be turning the wheels. You won't really be heading anywhere. Yeah. And so from a you now that you've stopped wholesale, has that mm-hmm. pressure? Have you do you feel do you think it's one of the best decisions you've made? Yeah. 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 So don't stop <laughs> <laughs> Um and let's talk a little bit about social media. You have like you said, massive following over twenty seven thousand mm-hmm. followers. How important has social media um, been to in the role that it's played for your business? It's been major and I don't want to seem ungrateful but just I wish I wasn't on social media. I wish I didn't really? need it. Why? It just – it's very – we're attached to our phones. Yeah. You know, whether I'm going to post or whether I'm not, I'm still spending way too much time on it. So it has been great and I think it is not going anywhere. Um yeah, and I just try to be creative when I post mm. instead of just generically feeding people content. Yeah, you've got a very engaging um, audience because mm-hmm. your, your posts are very unique, you know, your, com- your captions are always pretty funny. Do you remember <laughs> the poached egg one? Do you remember what that was? Yeah, I do. <laughs> I was actually um, – yeah, I remember it was oh, – if I pulled up the stats, it was like 160 cents, thousands of likes – but I essentially said, um, well, I don't know, I'd have to get I, it I'm going to see if I can yeah. screenshot it and send yeah, it on the but things. But maybe you can, people can look it up. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was pretty funny. And it was just, like I said, you have a very, like, it's, it's real. And I think that's where your socials, your socials do really well. Yep. Um, you have a very um, yeah, engaging community with social media. So do you think your business would have been as successful as it is without social media? Uh, no, I don't. I don't. Because... If you can make one thing go viral, then your business is mm. deemed successful because of the foot traffic it yeah. brings. So I had a few things that went viral. Even things like peanut butter and jelly croissant, you know. Um, I had multiple actual, like actual products go viral and people came, lined up. How would I have reached those people without it? So, yeah. yeah. That's a great point. You spoke about branding um, and, and your brand. I know how much effort and energy you put into branding. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about why branding is so important for your business? Well, I have a passion for th- like things that are easy on the eye. So branding, buildings, interior, a fridge, it could be anything. If it's easy on the eye, I'm very captivated by that. So... For a brand that I'm 100% invested and owner in, it's a major, major, uh, what's the word, passion of mine to brand well. And I think it's important because that says a lot about your brand. I care about it. I invest in it. I believe in it. It says a lot of subliminal messages. Yeah. Yeah, from your name to your, the you know, you call it the... Art, art series. Yeah, um, yeah. I did like three art series where I meshed different worlds into pastry, whether it was food art, clothing art, f- you know, family art, yeah. whatever it is. Always pushing the boundaries. And, mm. and do you think this is a big part of staying relevant in, in the industry we're in? Because people essentially are, are looking for the next big thing or best yeah. thing, right? Yeah. I think it's relevant for two things, which is 
you know, your end user, whether they are eating or drinking your coffee or inspiring people. And I think people will follow a brand that inspires them, whether it's yeah. Louis Vuitton or anyone that actually inspires them. I have a lint bag there. See that lint bag? Yeah. Because I love the branding of it. I love that. So it's in my house. So yeah. I'm inspired the way lint brands things. Mm. Um, and how does that make you feel when people are posting photos of the, of the son of a baker brand? Yeah, like the, the cup is probably the most Instagrammed cup, mm. the takeaway coffee cup I've seen. Uh, it feels good. Like it, it, it's a measure of your success in branding. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, your branding is on point with some of the best in Australia and it's, it's credit to you for constantly working on it and building on that. Um, what, what, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? <laughs> oh, don't put me on the spot with that one. I actually don't know the best piece of advice. It would have to be something spiritual to tell you the truth. Yeah? Yeah, because that helps me stay, stay grounded, stay, you know... Um, in line with perspective, mm. everything is temporary here. So probably something spiritual, but I couldn't give you a, a, a particular line off the top of my head. All right, in that case, what advice would you give to your young, young, younger self at 20 years old if you knew what you knew now? Uh, transparently, if I could stress less, that would probably be the idea because we, I tend to stress about things that aren't going to change or maybe that it doesn't matter if they change or not. It's not a big deal. So probably just to stress less. Yeah. You, you're a very calm person. I don't see that stress. <laughs> you, you hide it very well. <laughs> I'm calm in my own house. Um, so, so essentially what's next for you? You know, what's next for the brand, mm. Son of a Baker, and, and for you also? <laughs> oh, that's a funny <laughs> question. Well... There's this guy building what he <laughs> calls the orchard. It's a five-acre, 200-orchard tree, all-day breakfast, all-day lunch, and it has a bakery on the site. You might know him. His name's Phil. <laughs> does a podcast average, sitting next to me. Average bloke, yeah. I'd love to um, be part of your brand and I'd love to be the bakery inside the orchard, which is probably going to be built at the end of the year. Yeah. So I'd love to partner with you in some capacity there. If not, uh, I will probably drive a tractor straight through it. <laughs> Whoever you put in there. I'll let my people know. <laughs> nah, I, um, I would like to scale into Westfields. Okay. A lot of people have a bad rap about shopping centres, but I like it because I don't have to worry about parking. I don't have to worry about bathrooms. I don't have to worry about mm. toilets. There's garbage. A there's a reason why that model works. Yeah. But there is also this stigma against Westfields and things yeah. like that. What yeah. do you think that is? I think they, in the past they've known just to be ruthless with circumstances in terms of rent or tenants. Yeah. I've heard stories of people losing their houses and, you know, you hear these crazy yeah. things where, if, you know, you're not under their r um, leadership or rulership, you will... You'll, you'll suffer for it. Um, but I know they've sold 48% uh, of Westfields yeah. to, I don't know, a massive French company or something. I can't remember exactly. But 
I like doing business with them because, again, my model works there. I just plant it and it's ready to go. Yeah. So if it works for you, it works for you, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it might not be for everyone, but also like I think it's a risk opening a street shop, mm. less foot traffic. Okay, it might be less rent, but it's hard. No it's contribution. Not yeah, yeah. It's, it's not easy. Right, Roman, who inspires you? Who inspires me? <laughs> um, I think people with strong minds, mentally strong people. That's, that's, you know, you see the resilience, the adversities they've overcome. People with strong minds, that's who I gravitate towards. Yeah. And older people, you can always learn a lot from older people. But I don't have like a hero figure besides my dad. Yeah, of course, yeah. Um, I don't have like a central hero figure that I would follow on Instagram and draw okay. inspiration yeah. from. And I've said this on maybe once in the whole time I've done my posts and stuff, but my inspiration for food doesn't come from other food. Wow. It's from interiors. Mm. Like you can look around, it's just easy on the eye. Yeah. So, yeah, I'd say interior design and strong-minded people. Just on that with the your inspiration, I think that's why you're so successful because you're not looking at other bakeries to mm. see what you can do well. You're yeah. looking at other industries yeah. to see what you can do well. I very, very – I don't think I've ever looked at a bakery's Instagram page ever. Wow. I look at architecture Instagram pages a lot. Mm. So people building neat um, abstract buildings. Yeah. And then I'm like, how could I do that in a fit-out and then how can I make that flow on into – an edible art. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, um, you know, when we're, I'm trying to build a culture or a team that, you know, work together, mm-hmm. I, I do something similar where I'll look at the most successful rugby league coaches and see what they've done to create that culture within the team. So to see that you're doing that as well shows that, you know, we, we, we follow on that right track to keep yep. us relevant and, and do the right thing. So there's a, there's a lot of um, talk out there that um, you're Drake, Drake's, <laughs> Drake's twin brother. I feel like Drake with this microphone in front of me. It's, it's literally, it's unbelievable. The resemblance is uncanny. What's, um, you get that a lot, right? I don't get it as much as you might think. When I was maybe 25, 26, 27, 28, like those years, Drake was like the biggest thing ever. So I had a shaved head and swagger. Um, so I would get it a lot then, but now not as much. Yeah. It's a good compliment. Yeah, it is. Well, once I got told Drake's ugly, but he can sing. So I was like, where does that leave me? I can't sing. Well, you can bake, so. Um, Drake bake. <laughs> um, is there, before I ask you that final question, is there anything that you think I could add to this podcast? Any question that I can ask you that you think we've missed? Um... Not that I can think of. I, I think in a podcast when I'm listening, I really want to know how to scale a business, how to do things right. So I'm always searching for something that no one will tell you mm. or something that will be like, oh, he feels that as well or he understands that as well. So, yeah, if there's any question that comes to your mind when I say that, feel free to ask it. Yeah. But I'm always looking when I'm listening to podcasts, like what is the difference between three shops or say you're 
listeners have two shops or three shops like me, how do you get it to a scalable yeah. business without losing yourself? Losing that, what makes a business special. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. And we had, um, I think, Trung from Espresso Worries on early on in the oh, probably cool. episode number nine. And he talks about how it was easy to get to about five and then 10 was hard, but from 10 to 20, it was disaster. You know, not disaster, but <laughs> yeah. the pressures and, and yeah. you lose that control, right? Yeah. So, um, but it's something thank you for adding that because it's, we're always looking at trying to find ways to get mm. better and stuff so um, my final question um, is from one of your favourite podcasts How I Built This Guy Raz it's also my favourite um, his final question he asks everyone is how much of your success do you put down to hard work and how much to good luck <laughs> I think they go hand in hand I think you get good luck when you work hard so I would say 90% is hard work and 10% is good luck you definitely need a, a good luck mm. in the mix of success because if something falls or a writer favours you or, a, you know, a post favours you, there's luck there involved. But I would say if you don't work hard, you're not really creating your own luck. Yeah, you can't put yourself in that position for that writer to write about you if you're yeah, not working hard. Right. So yeah, that's right. That's a great so point. So the hard work comes first and then worry about the luck. Mm. Roman, this is. Um, I'm glad we finally got it done because I'm, I'm, I'm super grateful for your time and 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 everything you've done for the industry. Um, like I said, you're still supporting me and supplying pastries to me. Hopefully, we can work together very shortly. Um, I really do appreciate you, man, and appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. <laughs>